Ecclesiastes 9:11 through 18. Again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler amongst fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. This is the word of the Lord. It's good to be here this evening, and uh, thank you, Brian, for being so generous uh, when you identified my age. (laughs) So uh, let me pray for us, and then I'll get going. Dear Father, we uh, thank you for this opportunity to get together and uh, worship you today, and we just ask that uh, as we hear your word that you would make it really clear to us through your spirit. Uh, We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would cause it to be effective in accomplishing your purposes in our lives of judging the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts and teaching us and rebuking us and correcting us and instructing us in righteousness so that we would be thoroughly prepared for every good work. We pray, I pray that you would guide uh, my words and that they would be honoring and glorifying to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Most of us like predictability in our lives. Uh, As a matter of fact, we not only want to know where we've come from, but we want to know where we're going. And we don't like the unexpected. We would like, as a matter of fact, certainty regarding our futures. And because of that, uh, there's some things we like and some things that we don't like. For instance, if you're a student, uh, you're all aware of the concept of a pop quiz. Pop quizzes can be difficult for people who want predictability in their lives because we're not quite sure how we're going to do. If we're well prepared and we've covered the material correctly, we might do well. Uh, But on the other hand, if we haven't and we've juggled what we're studying, we may not do very well on a pop quiz. Um, Telephone calls or cell phone calls at unexpected times are also something that uh, causes a little angst among all of us. Uh, Again, they can have a good end or they can have a bad end. Uh, Receiving a good call in the middle of the night uh, might be one that informs you that you're a grandparent. But on the other hand, at the same time, you might get a call that informs you that a loved one has been in an accident or worse yet, uh, a loved one has died. And then there's uh, hiking. What happens when you come across a bear on the trail? Is it going to charge you, or is it going to meander off and eat berries? This actually happened to me a couple summers ago. Uh, Luckily, I had my bear spray with me. Um, And packages. Uh, All of us like uh, Christmas. We like our birthdays. 
Uh, but packages are wrapped in uncertainty. Uh, we don't know what's in them. And we don't know whether we're receiving something that we like or whether it's something that we'll never look at again. Um, and as a matter of fact, this has spawned a whole new industry in terms of gift cards and uh, registers for those who are getting married. And I would imagine if most of you were willing to uh, identify yourselves, which I'm not asking you to do, uh, a lot of you come up with lists of what are acceptable gifts to receive at Christmas time and also at your birthday. Uh, we want certainty in our lives. Uh, when we go out to the car and jump in, we want it to start. Uh, we want well-behaved kids. We don't want calls from home regarding what's going on or calls from school. That wouldn't make sense to have calls from home. We don't want calls from school reporting on uh, the misbehavior of our kids. And we want our electronic gadgets to work. We all want certainty in our lives because certainty brings predictable outcomes, things that we want. Um, and when things go the way we want them to, we feel really good. And we want that good feeling to continue on in the future. Uh, and that's true whether you are a hippie or a homeless person. Now, the end might be a little different, but you do want certainty. Uh, the drive to get what we want starts at a very early age. Um, babies are born with a sin nature because of Adam's sin. Uh, but it doesn't take long for them to become practicing sinners. And for those of you who have had children, uh, you know this very well. Uh, kids can be very, very good at manipulating their parents. And if their parents don't uh, catch it in the bud, it's a, it's a difficult time for maybe years and years and years. Now this continues all the way on until we're adults. We want success, we want those feelings of success, and we want things to go well for us. Uh, an example for my own life is fly fishing. I love to fly fish. And the reason I love to fly fish is because I love to catch fish. Now, if I was someone who had fly fished for years, and I have fly fished for years, and uh, yeah, it's been a long time. If I, had, if I hadn't caught very many fish, or had often gone fly fishing and not caught any fish, I probably wouldn't be fly fishing today. What makes fly fishing worthwhile to me is the fact that I catch lots of fish. Uh, it gives me a sense of accomplishment, uh, a sense of success. It makes me feel like I've mastered something. And to that end, I have spent a lot of time in my life uh, working on developing my fly fishing skills so that I do, in fact, catch fish. Um, I've spent a lot of time studying uh, streams. I've studied hatches. Uh, I've studied entomology. Even though I, I think that sounds a little redundant, I've done it. And I've also worked for years and years and years on developing my casting. And it took me probably 15 years to learn how to cast correctly. I like to catch fish. And the more fish I catch, the more I enjoy it. Now, there are a lot of other benefits that you gain from fishing. Uh, you get away from the city, you get away from the noise, you get away from the smells of the city, uh, the heat and everything else. You're out in God's creation. Uh, you're relatively alone. But like I said, uh, if I didn't catch fish, I probably wouldn't go. 
So I have spent a lot of time uh, developing the skills and working at making sure that I get what I want. Um, all right, so we like the feelings of success and we want to experience them and, uh, again and again. And it isn't long then that we, before we start to develop strategies to make sure that we are successful. And I just uh, told you a whole bunch about my fishing strategies, but all of us have strategies for about everything we do in life. Uh, we have strategies today for how we eat, how we exercise, how we read, and we even have strategies for who we hang around with, where we eat, and anything that we think will accomplish our goals for us. Uh, we work to obtain financial independence because we think financial independence will give us security. Uh, we do everything we can to raise well-behaved kids, successful kids, because it gives us a great sense of satisfaction and we also feel respected by our peers. Uh, we go to the right school, we get the right degrees, and we marry the right spouses because we think it will give us prestige and advantage in life. And we even make great cookies because we think that cookies will cause people to respond to us positively. <laughs> and of course, there's getting a high GPA or scoring a lot of points, or making a lot of goals, or having the lead in the school or the church play. That gains us recognition. All of us want some type of return on our efforts to manage and control our lives so that we get what we want. But guess what? Solomon says our efforts to manage our lives to get what we want are largely in vain. So let's look at the text, today's text. Um, Let's start by reading verse 11. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Well, notice first of all that Solomon's uh, observations occur what is happening under the sun. So what is under the sun? It's our lives in this fallen world, the world that we live in right now. And notice also what Solomon, sa Solomon says. The race is not to the swift. The battle is not to the strong. Nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But Solomon isn't talking absolutes here. Because we all know that fast people do uh, win races. If you're familiar with the name Usain Bolt, is anyone familiar with Usain? He has only lost one major race since the 2008 Olympics. He's the fastest man that has ever lived on the face of the earth. And then uh, Bill Gates, you've heard his name also. Even though he dropped out of college, Bill Gates is very intelligent. And not only is he very intelligent, he is very rich. So what Solomon is saying here is that life is not predictable and there are no guarantees in life. Now, to you and I, we don't like this very much because we want, to be, we want there to be a relationship between cause and effect and we want there to be a positive correlation between all of our efforts to manage our lives and the outcomes that we get in life. Instead, Solomon's saying that under the sun, it appears that time and chance determines what happens to us, 
and who wins, whatever that means to you. In chapter 2, Solomon said, as a matter of fact, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. So as we hope for riches and security and favor and success, we hope that as the days and the months and the years pass by, that someday it'll be our day. But there aren't any guarantees in this life. Uh, Life is not like standing in line at your favorite coffee shop to place your order. Uh, Your hard work, your degrees, your experience, and your reputation don't guarantee you anything. But what about for Christians? Uh, Certainly, being Christians and having godly habits will give us some favor in this world, won't it? I mean, after all, if we read our Bible and we go to church regularly and we pray and we give to uh, Park Church, shouldn't that give us some advantage over non-Christians under the sun? Well, Solomon says there is absolutely no distinction. And so let's look look at some of the scriptures and see this in the lives of some uh, personalities in the scriptures. So first of all, I'd like to look at uh, Job. Now, the Bible says that Job was blameless and upright, that he feared God, and he turned away from evil. Now, if you know anything about Job, he was a very rich man. He, uh, he had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, and he had 500 yoke of oxen, which according to my calculations means he had at least 1,000 oxen. Uh, He also had 500 female donkeys, and as I thought about this, I also recognized that to have female donkeys, you have to have male donkeys. So he had over 500 donkeys. He had very many servants, and he had 10 children, seven boys and three girls. And he was a very devout man. He prayed for his uh, children after their regular, regular feasting, just in case they had sinned or cursed God in their hearts. And as a matter of fact, if you've ever prayed that God would build a hedge of protection around someone in your family, uh, that's something that we've learned to do because Job did that. Well, anyway, God allowed Satan to test Job. And this is what happened. His oxen, his donkeys, and his camels were stolen by two different raiding parties. His sheep and servants were consumed by fire from heaven. All ten of his sons and daughters were killed in a great storm. And he was struck with sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. And on top of that, his uh, supportive wife told him to curse God and die. So how how did Job respond to all the turmoil and loss and travail in his life? Well, this is Job's response. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And to his wife he said, Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? So in spite of his circumstances, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Even though he was upright in character and had all these great godly habits and prayed for his uh, children continually and made sacrifices for them, he did not expect that everything would go well in his life. Uh, He knew both evil and good came from God, even though God is not the author of evil. Now, the second person that I'd like to uh, talk about 
to, uh, I guess, illustrate that uh, it isn't any better under the sun for Christians and non-Christians is Paul. And Paul was the evangelist of the Gentiles and the great teacher of the New Testament. Now, in 2 Corinthians 11, and please don't turn there, Paul lists the hardships that he endured in his ministry. Listen carefully while I go over them. Uh, He was imprisoned. He was often near death. Five times he received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. He spent a night and a day adrift at sea. He was in danger from rivers, from robbers, his own people, and Gentiles. He was in danger in the city, the wilderness, at sea, and from false brothers. In addition, he was in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night. He was in hunger and thirst, often without food, was cold and exposed to the elements, and was under the daily pressure of anxiety for all the churches he had planted. So he certainly uh, knew what it was to suffer with Christ. In 2 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 8, Paul tells us why all of these difficult things in his life happened. He says, We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, from such deadly perils, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Paul reminds us that God set the course for our lives and that we should rely on him who has the power and did in fact raise Jesus from the dead. God exposed Paul to the perils that he went through in his life and he also delivered him from those perils. So even those with faith are not immune to perils under the sun. As Job said, I mean, not as Job, as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 8.14, there will be righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there will be wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. The same events happen to all. Now, all of us are tempted to live in this world as if this world goes on forever. And sometimes it's, uh, we even think of the gifts that God has given us, whether it's the ability to create wealth or it's uh, wisdom or whatever it is. We look at those as things that he has given us so that we can obtain what we want in life and make our life more comfortable. Uh, if you see gifts and living on this earth as a permanent in that respect, listen to these words from Jeremiah, who said, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. So if you are wise, don't boast in your wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. These are all gifts from God. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So the person who is living, who heeds Jeremiah's words, isn't living as if 
life here under the sun is permanent, but they're living here as if their real home is in heaven, and they are living here as an alien and a sojourner. In verse 12, Solomon says, the number of our days, in other words, when we die, is unpredictable. So verse 12 reads, For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the, chil- so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Most people die unexpectedly. And uh, as I was uh, planning this sermon, I was reminded of a story that one of my professors told the class. Uh, he and his wife were contacted by friends, dear friends, who had uh, recently had a baby, and the baby was having very bad medical uh, problems. And they asked uh, my professor and his wife to pray for them. And they not only prayed for him, but they traveled many states to be at their side and support them. Uh, unfortunately, though, the baby died after only eight days. Now, at the memorial service, the presiding uh, pastor made the comment that the baby had lived a full life. Now, this incensed my uh, professor. Uh, He did catch his tongue, and he went on to listen to what else the pastor said. And the next thing that came out of the pastor's mouth was a quote from Psalm 139, uh, verse 16. This is the quote. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So it was true. This baby who lived only eight days had lived a full life. And whether you and I live another day or another year or another decade, we will have lived a full life. As Psalm 31 says, our times are in God's hand. And as Solomon said in chapter 8 of Ecclesiastes, no man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. In light of these realities, keep in mind what Jesus said regarding his return. Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. It's really easy for us to get caught up in life and miss the forest for the trees. In verse 13, verses 13 through 18, Solomon addresses, uh, Solomon addresses wisdom and its apparent value under the sun. In verse 16, he says, Wisdom is better than might. And so an obvious question is, what is uh, wisdom? So I've compiled a couple diff- definitions here and put them together and have come up with the idea that uh, wisdom is skill in working out the practical details of our covenant relationship with God in our everyday situations and relationships. So in our covenant relationship with God. And of course, the only way we can have a covenant relationship with God is through Christ. Now, where does wisdom come from? Well, particularly in Proverbs, the Bible says that wisdom is grounded in a fear of the Lord. So the next question is, what does it mean to fear the Lord? And fearing the Lord means to have a reverent awe of God. But it's more than that. 
Uh, Fearing the Lord means that we understand that all of the decisions we make and everything that we do in our lives has both temporal and eternal consequences. Only understanding that, would you be able to fear the Lord? Um, Verses 14 through 16 gives us an example of the value of the wisdom then that is a gift from God and comes from fearing the Lord. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. So there's a lot of contrast there, and I'm not going to go over them, but the outcome looks really obvious. As obvious as uh, intelligent people getting rich, and as obvious as the race going to the swiftest. But, he continues, but there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. So what is expected doesn't always happen. In verse 16, Solomon goes on to say, The poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. Now, I think there's at least a couple different reasons why this is true. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians, Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So a poor man would no more be expected to be wise than a fool who believed that Christ was crucified for them would be expected to be wise. So we really shouldn't expect much more uh, in life under the sun. And as Solomon said earlier in chapters 1 and 2, even though there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, wisdom is a mixed blessing. This is a paraphrase. This is what he actually said. For of the wise and of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance under the sun. And finally, in verse 18, Solomon tells us that the benefits of wisdom can quickly be destroyed by one sinner. And the uh, Old Testament account of Israel's defeat at the hands of Ai is a great example of this. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, relate that to you. But let me go back and set the table before we do that. Uh, God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, brought them to Mount Sinai where he delivered the law to them, and brought them to um, the Promised Land where the time was right to execute judgment on the Canaanites who lived in the Promised Land. But before they went into the promised land, God instructed Moses to send 12 spies into the land. Well, they went into the land, and 10 of them were totally overwhelmed by what they saw. They were scared to death. They didn't want to trust God and do what he wanted them to do. And that was true of all of them except for Joshua and uh, Caleb. Well, uh, God was really angry, and instead of uh, sending them into the promised land, he instead set them to march in the wilderness for 40 years until everyone of fighting age had died. So the only two uh, men that remained were Caleb and Joshua. So the story brings us back to the point where the Israelites are about ready to go into the promised land again. They've crossed the Jordan River And the first city that God points to that they should destroy and then execute judgment against is Jericho. And uh, God had a plan for 
executing judgment against Jericho. And uh, the Israelites uh, paid attention to the plan and listened. I think they'd learned something in their 40 years of uh, marching around in the wilderness. God told them that they should uh, march around Jericho once a day for six years. Six days. Well, six years would be a long time. For six days. And then on the seventh day, they should march around Jericho seven times. And then when they heard the ram's horn and the trumpet, they were to yell. Shout, actually. And when they did shout, uh, the walls of Jericho fell down. The Israelite army went into Jericho and they killed absolutely everything that lived uh, except for Rahab, the prostitute who had uh, uh, given protection to some of their spies and those who were in her household. They weren't supposed to take anything of their own from Jericho, but any gold or silver or precious things that were in Jericho, they were to uh, retrieve for the Lord's treasury. So they were really feeling good about what they had done. As a matter of fact, the uh, account in Joshua uh, doesn't say anything about a single Israelite being killed in the battle. Well, the next place that God fingered that he wanted to execute judgment against was the people of Ai. And uh, Joshua, based on their past experiences, decided that he would only send 3,000 fighting men against Ai. So uh, he went ahead and sent the 3,000, but uh, instead of destroying the people of Ai, the people of Ai killed 36 Israelites and ran them all the way back to their camp. Now the Bible says that the hearts of the people melted and became as water. They thought that God had failed to keep his covenant promise to them. But in fact, God had told Joshua that Israel had sinned and transgressed the covenant that he had commanded them. And to jump ahead, um, this is what happened. Uh, Through a series of well, I'll just jump ahead. Uh, Achan was uh, an Israelite who was in on the fighting in Jericho, and uh, he actually took some of the treasured things in Jericho for himself instead of for the Lord's treasury. So he took a uh, cloak, and he took a few silver coins, and he took a gold bar, and, they buried, and he buried them in his tent. So they eventually found this out, and uh, Achan's sin then resulted in he and his family being destroyed, all his livestock being destroyed, and all his possessions being destroyed. And not only that, but the Israelites had lost uh, 36 men, and as the text said earlier, the hearts of the people had melted and became as water. So much good in terms of what they had done had been destroyed by one sinner. Now, on a personal level, I can relate to this also. In my better times, by the grace of God, I have, uh, by God's wisdom, uh, gone ahead and uh, loved my wife by serving her. And what that usually involves is uh, rubbing her tired, arthritic feet, or if she calls me from school and she has forgotten uh, something and she wants me to bring it, I've brought it to her. And sometimes I even do an excellent job of cleaning the kitchen when I haven't been asked. But it's really is... Uh, it's really easy for me to destroy the good I've done uh, by sinning. And I like to call it, uh, what should I call it? Uh, 
I got to think for a second. Uh, well, heck, I can't remember the word I was looking for. Anyway, I, I like to call it uh, righteous impatience. But uh, quite often it pops up, particularly when we're going somewhere and we're trying to rush out the door, this righteous impatience of mine. But uh, my wife, interestingly enough, does not consider it uh, righteous, even though we might be late. And uh, what happens is all the good I have done uh, by following the Lord in terms of serving my wife goes down the drain because of my sin of impatience. And I know all of you guys are laughing out there, but I bet if you uh, gave a thought to it, all of you would recognize times where you have, in uh, the wisdom of God, uh, done something that was good and you have destroyed its effect by uh, sin. All right, in summary, what can we learn from this passage in uh, Ecclesiastes 9? Well, one thing we can learn is that life is full of uh, unpredictability. Nothing is predictable. Nothing is going to go the way we would like it to go. There are no guarantees in life. Another thing we've learned is that the unpredictability of life and the lack of guarantees not only applies to those heathen non-Christians but applies to Christians. And we've looked at the lives of Job and Paul to see that. Uh, The passage also teaches us that the people and culture that we live in under the sun are constantly tugging at us to find significance and security in the same things that they find significance and security in. But the events of everyone's lives, whether they know Christ or don't know Christ, are orchestrated by an all-powerful God for His glory alone. Life doesn't revolve around us and our comfort. In Isaiah, this is put very well in Isaiah 46. To whom will you liken me, this is God, and make me equal, and compare me that we may be alike? Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. We've also learned that it's desirable to fear God and gain wisdom, which is a gift from God, and that our attempts to manipulate God by pious living, either before we rely on Christ to save us from our sins or after we have relied on Christ to save us from our sins, don't work. So where does that leave us today? Well, life under the sun only makes sense in Christ. And only by trusting in the finished work of Christ in his life, on the cross, and in his resurrection can we be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God, be adopted by the Father as his beloved children, and receive the Holy Spirit to guide us and comfort us in the uncertainties and difficulties of life under the sun. So today, like every Sunday, we end by celebrating
the Lord's table. There are going to be four stations where you can come up here and remember all that God has done for you in Christ. Where you can take the bread and remember Christ's body broken for you and you can dip it in the wine and remember Christ's blood poured out for your sins and thank the Lord for all he has done for you in reconciling you to the Father. Uh, Before I pray and before we do that, I want to remind everyone that uh, right after communion there will be people up here that you can pray with and they will... uh, They're willing to pray with you about uh, anything, whether it's to give thanks or whether you have uh, particular needs in your life. But uh, let me pray, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's table. Dear Father, we thank you for how you have loved us in Christ. We thank you for choosing us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in your sight. And we uh, recognize that that was done not based on any merit that exists in us, but according to your good pleasure. And we thank you for uh, sending your son Jesus. And we thank you, Jesus, for being cursed on our behalf. We thank you for fulfilling the law when we couldn't fulfill the law. And we thank you for being a propitiatory sacrifice and satisfying the Father's uh, righteous wrath against us. We thank you also for sending the Spirit, and we thank you, Holy Spirit, for your ongoing work in us to conform us to the image of Christ and to, uh, for us to will and to act according to your good purpose. So, if you have put your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you're entrusting in his finished work, in his life, and on the cross, and in his resurrection, to reconcile you to God then please join us in communion. And if you haven't, please give thought to uh, what we have talked about today.